when you all vote, it scares some folks. But when you vote, you have the ability to determine the future of our country. Coming up on Carolina Connection, Vice President Kamala Harris empowers young voters of color in Greensboro. Good morning, I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. Also this week, two recent lockdowns at UNC have posed a particular mental health challenge for graduate students. The Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools adjust after they enter secure mode twice, and Carborough hosts a farmer's market for kids. Best part of the farmer's market is the people and the community support, and just feels like being a part of a bigger family and being able to serve that family with our um, local produce. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. It's been three weeks since Professor Sejia Yen was fatally shot on UNC's campus. The shooting, along with a second lockdown after a man allegedly pulled a gun in the student union, has taken a toll on a lot of people's mental health. One group that has been uniquely affected is graduate students. Reporter Tianyi Wong has more. Two lockdowns within just 16 days have left an indelible mark on UNC's campus. The challenges that graduate students face are even more grim. Within the high-stress and tough environment, depression and anxiety have become prevalent. Caitlin Tillett, a first-year law student, says a feeling of unease nagged at her and fellow graduate students. It was like really, really unexpected, and for it to happen a second time was like doubled. I've never experienced anything like that, so it was especially upsetting to me. And I think that some, that's something that uh, a lot of my like fellow law students have. Tellet always knew that she was going to the law school since her undergraduate years, leading to high expectations from both herself and others. Imposter syndrome, a phenomenon of self-doubt among high-achieving individuals, is common for graduate students like her. All the mistakes we make now really, really matter. And, you know, so I think that it's, it's a lot more nerve-wracking because um, I feel like there are just a lot more stakes now. I know a lot of us face, like, imposter syndrome and, like, general anxiety about our grades, especially. Oh, they say that, like, your grades as, like, a first-year law student are the most important. And, you know, that's really frustrating because it's so new to us and none of us feel like we're, like, doing well enough. Nobody feels like they're doing well enough, and I think that adds to the imposter syndrome. The pressure to excel in the academically rigorous graduate school environment can be overwhelming, and recent events have exacerbated these feelings. Sarah Reeves, the director of Behavioral Health Spring Board, an initiative to address issues in behavioral mental health at UNC School of Social Work, explains why graduate students' mental health concerns might differ from those of undergrads. You know, with every stage of life, the complexity of what you have to deal with in terms of responsibility is going to become more complicated. So, you know, with a more traditional undergraduate student who's able to go to school full time and not having to compound um, coursework with working with family responsibilities and other life responsibilities may look differently than for an older graduate student who is juggling and managing multiple priorities and multiple responsibilities at one time. Raves also points out the changing demographics of graduate students and the impact of juggling multiple responsibilities on their mental health. 
we have um, the demographic of our student population is increasing in age and we know that the more you put on your plate the more likely something is going to fall off and so when plates are overwhelmed with all of these different responsibilities that are having to be juggled at the same time it increases the amount of stress that a person feels and so that weighs on people as well. In the week of August 28th campus shooting and subsequent turmoil last Wednesday, counseling and psychological services, faculty members, and other organizations have worked to provide mental health resources. Avery Cook, the director of CAPS, says that they're committed to ensuring no students feel alone during these trying times. They have individually addressed the needs of students since the tragedy offering support to numerous graduate students. We see a ton of graduate students. They have different expectations depending on what they're doing. They may be a TA or maybe working in a lab. Um, they also may have families or folks that they're taking care of, and that's an added stressor in their lives. So we find that sometimes graduate students may be dealing with things that are a bit different from undergrad, but we want to make sure that they know that we have supports for them as well. Cook offers advice on self-care and coping with trauma. The biggest suggestion is just to be really gentle with yourself. Um, reaction can look like a lot of different things. In the immediate aftermath, it can look like um, some difficulty with sleep or concentration, kind of struggling to get things done. Um, and sometimes that can last for a little bit, and there can be a lot of internal pressure to kind of get back to normal, um, when what we really sometimes need is just to take some time to take care of ourselves. Professors are also advocating for graduate students' mental health, recognizing their vital role in the university community. A statement initially signed by psychology and neuroscience professor Kelly Maskotel received support from 198 professors Tellis says she's glad to see different people supporting the mental well-being of graduate students, and various measures have been implemented to enhance this support. I really appreciate them taking like that uh, sort of initiative um, to like help us students, because you know I do think it's something that's really important. In Chapel Hill, I'm Tianyu Wang. During the two UNC lockdowns, the Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools also moved into secure mode, causing stress for that community as well. The first time it happened, August 28th, was the first day of class. The sounds you are hearing now were recorded at Morris Grove Elementary on September 13th, just hours before the second emergency caused the school system to lock their doors once again. We are right next door, right in the backyard of the university, and at the time when there are alerts about a person at large who's armed and dangerous, the truth is nobody knows where this person is. That's Andy Jenks, the chief communications officer of Chapel Hill Carborough City Schools, speaking between the two days. It's a time of great uncertainty thrown on top of a day where you're just getting to know people for the very first time. And so that, that's a tense situation. It's stressful on our staff, on our students, and our families. Morris Grove Elementary Principal Amy Rickard says that after receiving the alert, Morris Grove went into secure mode, meaning all students must remain locked indoors and no one can enter the building. Faculty at Morris Grove did not alert students about the details of the incident and tried to ensure that they were not aware of it. With the younger children, we generally assume that most of them don't know. We always try to leave it up to parents to talk to their children about those kinds of things. 
Rickard says that she was unsure how the community would respond in the following days and weeks after the incident. With this situation, kids didn't really come in and talk about it as much the next day, but we're kind of prepared to either have whole group conversations, small group conversations, individual supports, just depending on what children need. Though Rickard says most students were seemingly unaware of the incident, the adults were equally part of the situation. We have a lot of Carolina uh, graduates here on our staff and, uh, of course, a lot of families who work at the university. So I think the adults certainly um, continuing to feel that. Director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement, Dr. David J. Schoenfeld, says it is important to consider the long-term effects traumatic incidents such as these have on the community. I think a lot of times people assume that crisis events are singular events, that they occur on a day or they occur at a moment. Um, and that's actually when crisis events start uh, at one point in time, but they do tend to evolve over time. Schoenfeld says that events such as these often trigger old emotions or memories, causing adults to be particularly vulnerable. However, he also stresses the importance of acknowledging the incident with the students, as they, he says, often know more than we believe. I think we have to move away from telling people that they shouldn't be worried or pretending that they're not worried and instead acknowledge that they're worried and help them figure out how to cope with that distress. Jenks agrees. He says that timely and honest information is the most important thing to concerned families during a crisis. Ultimately, we all want the same thing. We want what's best for our students. We want what's best for one another. We want everyone to feel safe and well-informed in a time of crisis. Following the second incident on the 13th, Chapel Hill Carborough Public Schools announced they will offer a safe space for students who wish to express feelings from the event. Families and staff are welcome to read over additional resources for discussing violent events at the CHCCS CARES webpage. In Chapel Hill, I'm Henry Taylor. This next story includes mentions of suicide. It's the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 18 in North Carolina, and the third for those aged 19 to 34. A UNC initiative called Carolina Across 100 has launched a new statewide project, Our State, Our Wellbeing, to reduce suicide. Reporter Sia Zhen has the story. Starting in June, Carolina Cross 100 Initiative began recruiting community teams from across North Carolina to participate. Community Engagement Director Michael Walker says how big the team is right now. We announced 15 teams that will be participating in the work over the course of the next year. Um, so they represent 24 counties from every part of North Carolina. The number and the rate of suicides have grown in North Carolina over time. In 2021, North Carolina lost 1,448 lives to suicide. Life lost to suicide um, really just tells um, a fraction of the overall story because there are many more people who um, attempt suicide, who may be struggling with um, a mental health condition um, and are unable to get the support that they need. It's really important for us to intervene. Given this urgent task, Carolina Across 100 already plans out its next step. And between now and the end of next summer, we're going to host a series of four forums with each of those teams um, to give them opportunity to learn from peers and ultimately implement strategies uh, to improve support for suicide prevention and mental and behavioral health in their communities. Carolina Across 100 is trying to bring the experts together and their problem-solving skills to the needs of the state of North Carolina. Daniel W. Lowe is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at UNC Hospitals. 
The Suicide Prevention Institute really was started um, because of a donation from the Starling family to better understand the causes of suicide and how to help prevent suicide. That can affect anyone, anywhere, whether it be a student on campus or someone who is living at the ocean. She says she wants to make sure that folks get resources for where they are in their phase of life. Do you need to be able to get resources on how to deal with navigating difficult situations with your parent, or do you need to figure out strategies of how to develop new friendships now that you're no longer in a school setting or in a more isolated situation? And so that's one of the biggest things from a child adolescent psychiatrist perspective. From what we can do to help ourselves. Le Yi Wen, a junior majoring in psychology. Wants to pursue a career in psychological counseling. She heard about the program from one of her professors. So, if the collaboration with the fifteen organizations could be successful, it would be more like more marvelous in aiding students' mental health development. In the meantime, Dr. Low says, whenever seeing someone struggling, reach out and check on them. They have counselors, they have therapists, they have psychiatrists. We are here to help you. I think one of the biggest things that that we have is that sometimes we assume someone else is taking care of someone or reaching out for them, and oftentimes it's very isolating in a very digital world. Sometimes it's better to get back in and and to have that human touch again. In Chapel Hill, I'm Siyajin. If you're going through a difficult time and want to reach out to talk to somebody who can help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Its new number is nine eight eight. Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to NCANT State University in Greensboro last Friday to engage with young voters. Students and other college-age people tend to vote Democratic, and Harris tried to get them excited about the Biden campaign. Carolina Connections' Samantha Hoffman reports. Students at North Carolina A&T had many topics in mind before the vice president's talk. Here are A&T students Kyla Reese, Brielle Mandenhaw. Tyler Lewis and Rachel Harris's priorities: voter engagement, gun control, and the women's rights. Reclaiming your voice and reclaiming your power. So, what we can do as young adults to kind of help with these issues going on. Vice President Harris addressed all these topics and more during the second stop of her Fight for Our Freedoms college tour, encouraging students at historically Black and Hispanic colleges and universities to vote in the upcoming election. Now, join me in welcoming the Vice President of the United States. Harris, an HBCU graduate from Howard University, called the crowd a new generation of leaders and expressed the importance of electing officials who support their needs. Harris began by defending diversity, equity, and inclusion in all spaces, despite recent pushback from conservatives. She criticized censoring education, saying that all history must be taught in order to not repeat it. Black history is American history. Period. Harris called affirmative action a necessity and equity, and brought attention to a seven billion dollar budget the White House spent to support HBCUs. Harris also mentioned the new SAV program, covering student loan debt for recent graduates making under thirty thousand dollars a year, one step towards inclusion in public interest jobs. Harris engaged the crowd while discussing gun violence, having students raise their hands who experienced a lockdown drill. The sea of hands silenced the crowd as she spoke of the trauma she has witnessed from children. I've talked with young people in K through 12 schools who have told me about how, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like going to fifth period. Well, because in fifth period there's no closet. 
to hide in. You all have gone through so much on this issue. Harris acknowledged the recent lockdowns in Chapel Hill and called for an assault weapons ban, universal background checks, and red flag laws. Harris began the discussion of abortion by addressing religion's role in the topic. One does not have to abandon their faith or deeply held beliefs to agree. The government should not be telling her what to do with her body. Harris criticized laws in more than a dozen states that could jail medical professionals who perform abortions past gestational limits. While calling for Roe v. Wade to be reinstated, Harris emphasized the importance of exceptions for rape and incest, regardless of individual state policies. I know my goddaughter who was talking with me about how of her generation of high school students, they're looking at where to apply to college based on what the laws of those states are now. Harris stressed the importance of young voter turnout in changing policies and criticized Georgia's state law prohibiting citizens from offering food and water and voting lines, as well as states prohibiting student IDs as voter identification. When you all vote, it scares some folks. But when you vote, you have the ability to determine the future of our country in a way that might challenge a lot of people's notions about what is possible and who can possibly do it. ANC senior Garvin Collins said that the vice president's visit was encouraging both in representation and change and called for more elected officials to follow suit. See students, see collegiate students, you know, continue to support these HBCUs. You know, we are the future. The students are the future and we, we want to grow as much as we can. And again, just being seen and being identified with the goals such such a long way. So just continue to do that, and I'm excited to see what the future holds. The vice president will attend seven schools total on the college tour. In Greensboro, I'm Samantha Hoffman. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. The music we're hearing is from UNC graduate artist Tech Mean and undergraduate senior artist Silky, representing Legacy Productions, a growing music collective on UNC's campus. Now in sports, ACC officials continue to defend their decision to expand the conference by adding three schools from the West Coast. UNC leaders voted against the expansion. Kinsley Brady reports. With power moves from the SEC and the Big Ten, the ACC Board of Commissioners decided the conference needed to expand. While there was no barrier of location, the ACC had certain qualities new schools had to bring into the conference. ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips explained the main characteristics for new arrivals. When we initially engaged in the process of exploring potential expansion and throughout the entire process, you know, there were there were several priorities um, that we looked at to enrich and strengthen the ACC athletically, academically, financially marketing, branding, all of those things as it relates to in the classroom, on the field, and the, you know, the, the financial and, and business side of it. While it was not a unanimous vote, the ACC believed the addition of University of California, Berkeley, Southern Methodist University, and Stanford would strengthen the core qualities of the conference. 
While the ACC gained enough votes to extend the conference, three schools were not in favor of adding three new schools. UNC head football coach Mac Brown explained his thoughts behind the expansion. Now my thought is, is it best for our players? Is it best for our players' parents? And is it best for our fans? Uh, that's what I've always thought, because we're, we're thinking more about money right now than we're thinking about our fans. Um, and, and that's a tough deal. Uh, where we, we need to think about our players, and, and not all those players have NIL money. Brown addressed his team after the addition of three new teams. He reached out for feedback from the players to justify UNC's decision. And I said, do you want to have three new teams in your league? What, what does it do to you? What, what effect do you have? Because I want to know what they think. It's their lives. It's, it's not my life. Um, and I think that's the biggest concern I would have. Is it best for our players? While Brown emphasized athletes, Commissioner Phillips stressed the ACC's consideration for the players and their student-athlete experience. We just had great pause about the student-athlete experience. And what does that feel like? What does that look like? But we want to eliminate as much of that uh, burden on the student athletes as we can. With different rule changes and additions in other conferences, the ACC needed to find a way to expand while keeping student athletes in mind. UNC Ghost Hills columnist Adam Lucas emphasized the future of the ACC. I think the ACC made this move with preserving the league for future years in mind. Mm -hmm. Whether Carolina is a part of that league in the future, I think is something the Tar Heels, along with every other school in the conference, is going to be constantly evaluating, trying to figure out where is the best fit and where gives Carolina student-athletes the best opportunity to succeed at the highest possible level. The addition of three new West Coast teams gives the ACC more stability across the country. With constant change in college athletics, the ACC hopes this move strengthens the conference. In Chapel Hill, I'm Kinsley Brady. UNC men's football played their third game of the season last Saturday, defeating the Minnesota Gophers 31-13 in the first game ever between the two teams. Tonight, they take on the Pittsburgh Panthers. Joining me to discuss the start of the season is the Daily Tar Heels' Lucas Tomei. Thanks for being here. Of course, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so UNC has won all three games so far this season. Uh, how does this start compare to seasons in the recent past? Yeah, sure. Well, the Tars have started 3-0 and in back-to-back -back seasons for the first time since 1997. That was the year they went 11-1. and And Mac Brown said in his recent press conferences that he was super proud of the tough non-conference schedule that UNC's played. Um, they started off the season with a really tough neutral site game against South Carolina, a pretty good SEC team, straight into an in-state rivalry game, double overtime win against App State in their home opener, and then followed that up with another home win against Minnesota, a pretty formidable Big Ten team with a good defense. So um, this non-conference start has been you know, pretty much all that they could have asked for, and now they'll look to continue that success into the conference uh, schedule. Gotcha. So uh, going forward, what would you like to see the team improve on? Yeah, one thing that UNC has really been criticized on in recent years is their defense. Um, the defensive line actually looked really good against South Carolina in that season opener. They tallied nine sacks, put a lot of pressure on uh, quarterback Spencer Rattler, and then they struggled a little bit more against App State, allowed a lot more rushing yards, allowed App State to pick up a lot of first downs on the ground, and that is a unit that's really going to be looking for consistency, that front seven. They played a little bit better against Minnesota, and um, they're going to really look to contain uh, Pitts, Phil Jerkovich on Saturday. So consistency in that front seven 
will really raise the ceiling, raise the potential for the UNC team. And then also one thing that Mac Brown has mentioned he's concerned about is how thin the offensive line is just because of injuries and what have you and, and recruiting. Uh, they lost some people to the transfer portal. Uh, that offensive line is going to be what powers May to, you know, have that air raid offense and powers Omarion Hampton to break off those big rushing plays. So they're going to have to really stay stout throughout the rest of the season to keep that offensive machine moving. That was Lucas Tomei of the Daily Tar Heel. Lucas, thanks again for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you, Henry. Every Wednesday, the Carborough Farmers Market hosts a program that seeks to engage and educate children in the community about local agriculture. Carolina Connections, W.H. Hayes, has more. It's a sunny afternoon at the Carborough Town Commons as farmers line the gazebos with their fresh produce and local products, creating a cornucopia on every table. A child walks up to the stall, presents their newly earned bunch bucks, and suddenly they purchase $5 of produce all on their own. This is the Market Bunch. Since 2015, the program has been held every Wednesday during the peak season for produce. It features different activities for kids to get hands-on experience with agriculture, such as growing strawberries, making pickles, or riding a tractor. Laura Perez has been the assistant manager since 2020 and says the support from the North Carolina Farm Bureau makes the program possible. That funds things like tastings, recipe demos, and such. It also allows us to fund what we call our Bunch Bucks, which is a $5 coupon that um, we give to kids when they participate in the activity that can be used to buy fresh fruits and veggies to the market. So it's a really nice way to sort of like cultivate that health behavior in them um, that they come to the market, they're able to get $5 and then kind of make independent or family-oriented choices about what fruits and veggies they're going to have. Of course, it's a fun time for kids and their parents, but it's also a great time for the farmers. Howard Allen, who owns Faithful Farms, says his experience with the farmer's market is fulfilling. I sell a variety of um, produce, um, you know, gr greens, microgreens, um, some fruits, and just seasonal herbs, and uh, we sell these items year-round. Best part of the farmer's market is the people and the community support, and this feels like being a part of a bigger family and being able to serve that family with our um, local produce. The farmers aren't the only local group taking advantage of the space to reach the kids who come. The Carborough Cybrary, a branch of the Orange County Library, partners with the Farmers Bunch to do story time readings for the children. Jenna Fishman, who works for the Cybrary, says community is intrinsic to the Market Bunch. I think it's great to like get kids involved in the local community, um, having them you know outside in public, meeting other people. I think that that's a really important skill to build from a young age. Um, and the fact that we're able to do that sort of in concert with the farmers market, which is also such a like integral part of like the local food ecosystem, I think is just a really great way to get kids like holistically excited about participating in community. The Market Bunch stands firm in its dedication to providing a space for people to come together and celebrate what it means to be a community. In Carborough, I'm W.H. Hayes. Today is the first day of fall, and Chapel Hill residents are already looking for the perfect pumpkin for their doorstep. Carolina Connections' Caroline Horn reports from Spring Haven Farm. Last year, the News and Observer ranked Spring Haven Farm as the best pumpkin patch in the Chapel Hill area. The secluded farm is about 10 minutes north of Chapel Hill on Homer Ruffin Road. 
While the pumpkins are grown in the mountains and shipped to the patch, people can carve them amongst the farm animals. On the farm, you can see chickens, pigs, bunnies, horses, and most importantly, goats. The farm is most known for their goats, which people can pet while they carve pumpkins from the patch. Kieran Criffield, one of the owners of the farm, said that carving pumpkins with goats is the biggest fall event that the farm looks forward to each year. It's a family farm. Me and my dad started it, and so we've been working here. It's been 16 years total, but we've only had goats and people visiting for the last seven years. Aside from the goats, people can see all of the animals on the farm as they walk around. We have our goats. They love attention. It's fun to feed the chickens. We have bunnies that'll uh, take the treats from you also, several of them running around. And if you're very, very patient, sometimes they'll come over to you for pets. The animals help prevent waste as well. Waste Advantage magazine reports that as much as 1.3 billion pounds of pumpkin waste goes to landfills each year. Decomposing pumpkins also produce methane, a harmful greenhouse gas which contributes to climate change. On the farm, the pumpkins are used as compost and fed to the animals after people are finished carving. Criffield said that the goats and pigs like to eat pumpkin rinds and guts and that they are a low-calorie snack for the animals. The pigs are very excited about their pumpkins. Other activities on the farm include a gym mining station for kids, a games area with darts and axe throwing, and a beer pavilion for adults. Uh, it's just a fun place to hang out. In Chapel Hill, I'm Caroline Horn. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Kevin Paris. I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. And I'm Henry Taylor. Thanks for listening.